I've always been really interested in the power of food and like people eating and sitting together. I think it's the power of breaking bread. It's community, isn't it? It's like it's sitting together as two human beings. And I think that is incredibly powerful. Hi there, welcome to Homing In, the podcast that explores the meaning of home in people's lives. My name's Matt Gibbard, co-founder of The Modern House and Inigo. For this episode, I've come to meet up with one of my food heroes, Sky Gingell, at her house in West London. I first became aware of Sky's cooking probably about 15 years ago or so, when I visited the cafe at Petersham Nurseries in Richmond. I couldn't quite believe that such elegant food could come out of a tiny shed in a garden centre, and nor could anybody else, it seems, because it ended up earning her a Michelin star. Nowadays, she has her beautiful restaurant Spring at Somerset House in London, of course, and she's also the culinary director of Heckfield Place, which is an acclaimed hotel in Hampshire. Sky's life story is really fascinating. Her father, Bruce, was the first man on Australian TV and he met her mother on a game show, believe it or not. She feels that she was born into the wrong country uh, and potentially even the wrong family as well. And she's been much happier after settling into the culture and the softer light of Europe. Sky is a very, very warm, open, lovely person. And we talk about all sorts of things, including what it's like being a mother to grown up kids, why she's currently single, uh, her favorite things to eat at home and all sorts of other things as well. I'm really excited to share this one and I very much hope you enjoy it. Sky, I want to start at the beginning. Yes. Because you're, so you're home from the past. You've chosen to talk about the house you grew up in, which sounds pretty out there. Mm. So tell me about it. Where was it? So I grew up in Sydney. Yeah. And it was the first house that my parents, they were, when they were young, they wanted to buy a house. But the only thing that they could actually afford was literally a cliff face in the eastern suburbs so it literally was a piece of sandstone cliff that just went straight up and so they built this house and my mother was really interested in design she worked for a very famous interior decorator called Marion Hall Best in Australia so she worked with with a young architect called Bill Lucas who was quite a kind of radical sort of thinking architect and it was literally like a tree house and as a child it was incredibly exciting to live in because it was they sort of suspended this kind of like it was tiny. I mean, it felt big when I was little, but I know when I go, sometimes I drive past it if I go back to Sydney. Yeah. It would have been absolutely minute, like a little terrace house just perched on stilts. Uh, we had a kind of little way you park the car underneath and then you'd climb up these sandstone steps in this kind of like, felt like a jungle because you were completely surrounded by these wharfwood slats. And we had this little garden that would have been honestly the size of a postage stamp. It must have been a little bit of rock face that they'd reclaimed <laughs> for this sort of tiny garden. And it was really, it was beautiful. It was all, um, it would have been in the 60s and we had all kind of, all the floors were sort of dark green concrete with sort of the brass oh, wow. in the middle. Oh, and really? Yeah, and it was um, all a kind of exposed brick and very modern. Like my mother loves modernity. And so we grew up with a lot of kind of like, I suppose now looking back, the kind of key iconic pieces of, uh, you know, a lot of tulip chairs and sarin and tables and Noguchi lights. and But that was very much my mother's aesthetic. Okay. Have you inherited that as well? Bits and pieces. Like, I feel like uh, when I grew up, my mother had such a strong image of what a house was like. Sometimes that felt a bit intimidating to kind of find your own. My sister's also an interior designer. So uh-huh. 
sometimes I find it very hard to voice. I I don't feel confident in that <laughs> yeah, arena sort of thing. I, I don't feel like they sort of would look at me as like, oh, no, not that colour. Oh, or really? They probably don't, but I feel that. Yeah. But they feel kind of a little bit intimidated sometimes when I talk about food. So, yeah. You, yeah. Well, exactly. And your place in Sydney, was it by the coast or? It was an area called Wallara. So it's mm. the, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney and it wasn't on the beach, but yeah. you're never very, far. never very far. There's probably 33 beaches in Sydney itself. Yeah. So most of the time you're never more than about 15 minutes from a beach. Yeah. And do you still feel that connection to the sea? Somehow, do you have I that? feel like, I feel really, I definitely feel if you grow up in, so for example, I couldn't live in Australia. Yeah. And I still think of it as home in many ways. I love it. I get very excited to go the first and second week I love. By the third week, it's like, please get me out of here. Why? Um, I, f- I feel like I probably didn't, all my adult growing up was done outside of Australia. So mm. maybe I just regressed to who I was then and I can't kind of break that um but I don't know I just I feel um I've always felt much more comfortable in Europe when I was born I thought I was born into the wrong country I literally did slightly the wrong family too but like also the wrong country I just thought it was so bright and harsh (laughs) so when I came to Europe and it was all kind of soft focus I just really that's interesting Why, why is that then I don't know I think I've, I've definitely spoken to people who um, feel the same. Yeah. But go, going back to the question of do I miss the sea, I think there is something in your DNA when you grow up with that huge sky. Like I mm. think that would be the thing more than anything. I think if you grew up in Africa, it was probably the same. I've definitely spoken to people from Africa who the kind of sea, they're big, harsh landscapes. And I do think they get into your DNA and you, you do yearn for them. Okay. So you said something really interesting there, which is that you slightly feel like you were born into the wrong family. And I know you're, you know, you're saying that in a witty way, but in, in a sort of serious way, what is it about your upbringing that makes you feel that? I just think I was very different from everyone in my family, you know, and I think that I probably was actually quieter. They're, Australians are very, like... I don't, I mean, obviously I can't paint a picture of every Australian being the no, same, but there's a, there's a kind of brashness, there's a sort of loudness that I actually just found a little bit like, I wanted just to turn down the volume on everybody. <laughs> so what were you like as a child? If, if, if we could look down on you, were you very quiet? I think I probably was quite quiet. Yeah. But I think it could have come across as being quite cold. Right. So you were slightly remote somehow. Yeah. Why was that? Were you in your own head? Yeah, I think but I think I was probably quite busy protecting myself from all the noise. Yeah, right. I mean, it's really interesting because I have my youngest daughter has a very similar way. I need a lot of downtime. I need mm. a lot of quiet. Mm-hmm. And the noises can get very loud. The external noises can get very loud for me. And I find it actually quite confusing when that happens. And... I can see it in my youngest daughter. She's very similar to me. So you're an introvert, essentially, is what you're saying? I don't know. Mm. I don't feel I could... I find it's funny, all those kind of labels, isn't it? Because I'm also... I do love people, and I'm really happy to chat with you now. You know, well, I don't I, like yeah. parties or... Yeah, I think I'd probably put myself in the same bucket. And I, I think the reason I ask you if you're an introvert is my definition of that... And I agree the label thing's tricky, but my mm. definition of it versus an extrovert might be that you 
you find your energy by by pulling yourself away and being in your own space for a bit. Yeah. Whereas I think if you're an extrovert, you find your energy by being with other people. And it's not to say that you don't do both, but I think, you know, you described yourself as someone that needs that that mental downtime. Mm. And that's really interesting. So, I mean, as a child in that house, if you look at yourself, like, do you, were you happy there? Or what do you think was the emotion? I feel, if I'm very honest, I've had my life probably in two parts. And the second part has been much happier for me than the first part. I, I, I just felt like I didn't... It's taken me a long time to be the person that I am and feel happy with it. Often, if I feel about my childhood, I, the like physical thing I would do is put my hands over my ears. Right. Because yeah. obviously there were huge moments of fun and happiness and I had, you know, mm. amazing friendships. But I feel much more settled in the second half of my life. I wonder if it sounds like maybe mm-hmm. you're quite a sensitive spirit in an environment that maybe didn't quite cater to that or understand it, possibly. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your parents, because your dad was quite a character. I mean, he's got a Wikipedia page, which is fascinating. <laughs> uh, but tell me about him. Um, he was like a huge extrovert, yeah. like probably a real show off, actually. Self-made, uh, was the first man on Australian television. So he met my mum through running a game show called Name That Tune. But he he was the man who said, good evening and welcome to television. And so, so I, cool. <laughs> it's weird. And it broadcast from a church hall in Sydney in 1950 something. And I often think about, you know, all of this kind of like tech and how exciting all of that must have been. He was never in the house. And so he was um, he was very kind of like flamboyant and um, probably, probably narcissistic, but affectionate and mercurial, you know. And my mum is, uh, had been raised in, in, in Shanghai and they were evacuated. And so she came to Australia as a refugee with a single mum. And she was quite, um, my mother's got a huge internal mind too. So like when you see her, like I imagine her head is like this incredible magic box, you know, full of like the most amazing and interesting and wild things but she's very conservative on the outside. Okay. So Sydney was incredibly small and it was in the kind of 70s and everybody knew what everybody else was doing. It was like real leave it to beaver. You know, you get on the school bus and someone would report you from not having a one inch blue ribbon on your ponytail. Oh, wow. You know, everybody seemed to know everybody's business and that I didn't like too because everyone knew who my father was and... You know, he was so flamboyant. He'd send chauffeur-driven cars to pick us up from school. And then we'd, it, it was just embarrassing. People would say to me all the time, I saw your father on television last night. And I was like, that is not my father. <laughs> that is my uncle. <laughs> Did you really? I couldn't bear it. Yeah, I mean, it was just like embarrassing for me, you know. And yeah, so, I mean, I knew as soon as the day I left school that I was getting on a plane and I wasn't, I was leaving Australia. And I did that. I left at 18 and I've never lived there again. How did your mum feel about it all? I don't, I don't know. I think it was, I mean, they were married for 30 years. They didn't, um, they ended up divorcing when we were kind of in our 20s. And I would imagine now they wouldn't have stayed married nearly as long as they did. I think it was a very different time. They're very different characters. And I think my father probably thought that mum was good wife material. 
Yeah. I think he probably thought, oh, she'll look great. You know, they got married, you know, and that really, I think they were engaged after three weeks and married after three months. It was one of those kind of things. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Very 1950s, like. Yeah. Colonial, you know, like outposts, sort of. It, it, it was very, like Australia was very middle class and very uptight. Yeah. Everything was about manners, table manners. You couldn't blink without having your manners, like, <laughs> you know, like take your elbows off the table, sit up straight, pull your chair in. I mean, that was, that was dinner with mum. Mm. And that was like exhausting. Are you not like that with your kids? I do actually think that manners are incredibly important. Like, I think to be gracious and kind and mm. say thank you and please is really lovely, you know. But I'm not, I'm, I wasn't, no. Not formal in that same way. Almost. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, and was food a part of your childhood? Where did food come in? So, mum wasn't a great cook. Mm. Like, she wasn't... Um, she wasn't a terrible cook, and I think she probably cooks like most people cooked, where you probably have a repertoire of five or six things. Yeah. So it's, you know, roast chicken and mashed potato and broccoli one night. Yeah. You know, she did a kind of beef stroganoff, you know. Yeah. And I actually, to be really honest with you, it's not a dissimilar way to the way I anyone runs a house in a way, you know yeah. what I mean? And like you probably do to some yeah, extent. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. But when my, um, my father um, had this sort of real midlife crisis for sort of 42, 40, Three, he went to visit this man called Misho Kushi, who was the head of the macro, like he was the kind of founder of the macrobiotic movement with a guy called George Asawa. And dad became macrobiotic overnight and actually wow. stayed macrobiotic till he died. But uh, that was quite weird because it happened when we were probably all about 11 or 12. And right. all of a sudden the whole household changed and we were eating, you know, agar agar and porridge with umeboshi plums and well, so to the uninitiated, what does macrobiotic mean in reality? So macrobiotic is a traditional Japanese way of eating, really, where you eat within a 500 square mile radius. I happen to agree with that. It's yeah. really interesting, the things that have influenced me from it. It's basically 60% grain intake, very little proteins or fats. It's a very simple way of eating. It's almost eating like a bowl of rice and salty and fermented things and... Um, but it was very much, it was quite jarring and quite, um, you can only imagine having kids as early teens and all of a sudden you come home and it's like, no, no, there's no more lime cordial. <laughs> no, no chicken. Yeah. Here's an umeboshi plum and some miso for your breakfast. And you're like, what? And not only that, he moved a yoga teacher into our house and he moved a, a macrobiotic chef into our house. No way. Yeah. So obviously we then developed this huge kind of like sneaky you know yeah. outer life where we were stuffing our face with finger <laughs> buns and like you know jelly snakes and like penny sweets and things from the tuck shop but it was that was actually um I think that was probably the end of beginning of the end of my parents marriage yeah okay because it was so extreme I think. yeah and then dad would come I mean he was such a cliche my dad he became such a sort of like midlife crisis you know, I mean, he didn't buy a sort of, you know, Ferrari and stuff, but he'd go to ashrams in India and he met with the Dalai Lama and ate, was going through a stage of eating ground diamonds for something. I mean, it was just like completely, <laughs> he did Est and every single, every workshop. I mean, it was, it was very 1970s. Yeah. We'd come home and there'd be Hare Krishna sitting in our sitting room chanting up when he came home from school. It was literally like that. And my mother was just not having that, you know. <laughs> And mum was sort of still standing there with sort of, you know, 
with her nice little lace-up brogues on or whatever. She was she couldn't cope with it at all. Wow, so interesting. So you went to Paris, is that right? I did. How, yeah. How, how, how did it come about? You sort of escaped. I was about to start. A, I, I started a law degree in Sydney, but it only lasted about three or four months. And when I did that, I got a job washing up in a restaurant, and that's when I fell in love with cooking. I feel very lucky because it was owned by a woman called Leila Sophie and she um, she was just really kind to me and I loved it. I loved being in that kitchen and she trained in Paris and she came back and she was making puff pastry and pure stocks and it was very, very technique driven and she would just say to me all the time, do you want to come over here? I'm just making a mayonnaise now and like, okay. and gradually I came out of washing up and I came into the kitchen and I I just really loved it. Okay, and so where did you go next from that, from there? So then I went to Paris. So I actually went to a school there called Lovren, which is a cookery school that doesn't exist anymore. So I did the course there, and then I worked in, like, restaurants in Paris. And I had an amazing time. And there was, like, seven of us in, like, three rooms. We went out all night, every night. And, you know, Paris, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be that age in Paris now but you know you'd eat you could eat oysters at six in the morning and there were some amazing clubs like Bandouche and we just had, like, had it such a blast in Paris and I went to cookery school every day I don't know how I did that I mean I could never you know that weird thing how do you stay up all night and then go to cookery school but somehow I did and I loved it uh and then from there I actually moved to London the first job I got was at the Dorchester Hotel under An- Anton Mosserman, who okay. was yeah, quite a famous chef like mm. in the 80s. And I absolutely hated it. And I thought, what the hell? Because, you know, I'd worked Layla's. It was beautiful and it was all light filled. And she was a woman and she cooked like from her heart and everything. And all of a sudden I was in a kitchen with like 170 people, strip lighting. I mean, the Dorchester Hotel, and it still does because I was there not that long ago, has an escalator in the kitchen. The kitchen's so big. It's over oh, wow. all these floors. Yeah. And um, I, I just, you go in the morning and it was dark and you come out at night and it was dark and I was just like oh this is I thought cooking was like yeah no this is not you know and then I worked in quite a lot of other restaurants then I came out and I did teaching and cooking and catering and then in 2004 I um I knew Gail and Francesco Bollioni who own Petersham Nurseries and they asked me to come and see for some consultancy I do a bit of consultancy and it was just like, a, it was all cement all over the floor and it was just like a classic little garden centre. It could have looked like home base. I could, I thought, oh my God, I could see you could do a restaurant here and it would be amazing. There's about three or four times in my life when I just see like something like a movie really clearly. Oh wow. And I saw that. It was almost like you just see the future. There was a little kind of wooden hut just tacked onto the back of their wall and we just put a stove in there and we just cooked. We had a blackboard. We only had three dishes. That's all we could do. I thought I'd be there for two months or something and then no one would come and we'd close it down and I'd go back to. What, and what did you think that you were trying to achieve with doing it? I just wanted to cook yeah. really simple food in a setting that felt really beautiful. Mm. I'm, I've always been really interested in the power of food mm. and like people eating and sitting together. What is that power? How do you describe that? I think it's I think it's the I think it's the power of breaking bread. It's community, isn't it? It's like it's sitting together as two human beings and I think that is incredibly powerful. But it's not just the food, is it? I mean I, th- I think, you know, when I first went to Pichon Nurseries all those years ago, I couldn't really quite believe it and I think a lot of people felt that as well because the food was obviously very beautiful, but the surroundings were as well and it's that combination, isn't it? I mean, 
food is one very small element of a memorable meal. Mm. You know, all the meals like that I can remember that like hold a special place for me have nothing to do with Michelin or fancy pants cooking. It's all to do with who I'm there with. I can remember the weather. I can remember the table. But mainly I can remember happy meals are the people who are at the table with me. So I I also really strongly believe that, and I say it at work all the time, if I had two restaurants, one had the best food in the world, but I walked in and I everyone was snooty to me and I felt a little bit inadequate and you made a wine choice and people looked at you like, you know, like doesn't matter how good the food is. Like I'm not going back, but if I walk into a restaurant, the food's okay, but it's not amazing. But I walk in and they're like, you know, I feel welcomed and loved. I'm going to go back to that restaurant a million times, you know? Mm. So like it's the whole thing is incredibly important, you know? And I think Petersham just hit that, I mean, it was very heartfelt, Petersham. Yeah. We had no game plan at all. Well, people pick up on that authenticity, don't they? I mean, yeah. What was the kind of direction of the food? How did you go about creating the menu? There's nothing I cook that I wouldn't eat. I mean, I probably shove my taste on everybody the whole time. And, and We Petersham, want it. That's what we like. <laughs> I love food that you can drag your bread through. I love food that's got maximum flavour. I love food that looks beautiful. Like I feel like you eat with your eyes. I like clean, ripe, sharp flavours. And we had no room at Petersham. I mean, we had a bench like that, you know, literally. What was that like as an environment? Heaven. Heaven, yeah. Yeah. For me. Yeah. The only slight thing I would say that I feel, I used to feel at Petersham because we had these stable doors so open and everyone would come up and talk to us. Right. (laughs) I do remember that. And at one point I actually put a sign on the thing. Do not feed the animals, no. It was like, please don't talk to the chefs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which was like, don't feed the animals in the zoo. Yeah. You know, people would come up, where's the, where's the bathroom? It's right, like okay. we're cooking for 140 people. Like, are you kidding me? And, you know, I mean, it's like this huge jigsaw puzzle of timings and mm. uh, priorities and tables mm-hmm. and mm. deadlines. And it it goes up and down on a board like mad. Mm. Okay, so, yeah, so stopping for a selfie isn't probably on the no, agenda. it's like not for me. So, I mean, what's absolutely... <laughs> mind-boggling really is you had this little very much you described cottage industry and yet you did get given a Michelin star well, yeah if I mean in, in many ways your food is sort of the diametric opposite of that whole thing but what did you think about that kind of validation at the time the Michelin thing I'm going to be really honest, I trained in Paris and I worked in Paris for two and a half years like you know it was like the ultimate thing a Michelin yeah. star you know and so when I got it I was like I couldn't like, I literally rang my mom at three in the morning. It's like, I woke her up. And like, mom, I could, you know, I was like, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe it. I was so excited. I was so proud of everyone. It was kind of amazing. And, um, but afterwards it became very painful because there's expectations from get diners a lot yeah. of the time yeah. that you're a Michelin star. And then we'd get all these letters all the time saying, call yourself a Michelin star restaurant. Like almost you should be ashamed of yourself. Mm. And so it sucked a lot of the joy for me out of it. And I think I did say to one journalist, I said, like, it's amazing, but sometimes it feels like a curse. Mm. Uh, I, I think Michelin too, if I'm being really honest, I don't think that Peterson would have got a, a Michelin star now. I think it got it because I think Michelin was desperately trying to change. Yeah, okay, so you were representative of something. Yeah, a change in Michelin. That's interesting. I think they realised that they couldn't define it so narrowly, which it had been, you know, and you had to expand to kind of more, like a much more diverse idea of great or good. Mm. 
Just a quick aside, I wanted to tell you briefly about my day job. So I'm the co-founder of a pair of design-led estate agencies, one called The Modern House and the other called Inigo. Uh, the Modern House is dedicated to the best examples of modernist and contemporary architecture. And Inigo, on the other hand, represents pre-modern housing. So everything from a Victorian workers' cottage in town to a Georgian rectory in the country. The idea is that via those two platforms, we are able to provide a pre-filtered selection of the most beautiful and well-designed homes for sale in the UK at any one time. Alongside the sales listings, there's all sorts of inspirational content as well. So there's house tours of amazing spaces, area guides, exhibition guides, cultural recommendations and things like that. So if you're looking to buy or sell a place or you want some inspiration for your own home, do take a look at our two websites, themodernhouse.com and inigo.com. Right, back to the podcast. Can I talk to you about ingredients? Because obviously that's a a huge thing. Where do you tend to get your ingredients from and how does that work? So um, at Heckfield, we have a 460-acre estate. So we grow most of our fruit and vegetables. And then at spring, I work with a woman called Jane Scotter, who's um, a grower. And she has a farm called Fern Farrow in the Black Mountains of Herefordshire. We've had a relationship for eight years and she grows for us. So we do all the planting lists. And and then I take, I, I mean, from mostly everything else is from small organic farms or small fishermen in, um, in Cornwall. We just take fish from British waters. I don't do that kind of just British thing because I think I would lose on, out on so much. I love some French and Italian cheeses and stuff. But we try to keep it small and... We go to producers who like focus on what they do as almost artists, you know, as particularly good at what they do. Yeah. I came to a lovely talk that you did with Jane from Fernborough a while back at the yard. And it was really nice because you talked about how her produce is so beautiful that she gives it to you and immediately that kind of sparks your imagination. So it seems to me that you often start with that thing, often that vegetable and sort of work from there. I mean, I definitely see it as a palette if I was an artist. Like, Mm. so we are huge kindred spirits, Jane and I. And, like, we've developed this really, over the years, like, the most amazing relationship, which is, like, we're 100% there for each other. I would throw myself in front of a moving bus to make sure that farm survives and thrives. And she will move heaven and earth to give me the most beautiful produce. And so it's a really lovely, like unexpected relationship that's come into my life. Like at the moment she's growing, she's got these little quinces, like are about only about two inches high. And she's like, I've just got these amazing quinces. And I just think somehow they'd be perfect on the cheese plate for you. And then hmm. I'd go away and I think, I'll think about it. I think, oh, I'm going to cook them in a sugar syrup. And then I'm going to dehydrate them. So they'll get really fudgy and wrinkly. And then I'm going to rehydrate them in like another kind of syrup. And then we're going to just put them whole on the cheese plate. But it's like, I would never have done that if Jane hadn't have spotted the quince. And so it's an incredibly like, oh, it's just an amazing relationship. It's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about your scratch menu at spring, because that's that really <clears throat> captures people, I think. Scratch came about because I realised I looked into food waste and that just a third of all food grown on the planet never gets eaten or reaches the shop shelf, you know. And then I met a friend and it's called Scratch because I've got this Australian friend and I was like, I think I'm going to do a menu that's just based on food waste. Like the stems of cauliflower or the outer leaves or all the things that you just throw, throw, throw Mm -hmm. without even thinking. And she said to me, oh, 
that's like scratch. And she said, you know, when you root around the back of the, you know, fridge on a Sunday night. And I was like, is it? Like, okay. I've never met another Australian who ever knows what the term scratch means. But, like, Trish was completely sure that it was, like, a kind of thrown together. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that sounds cute. It, it brings in a lot of kind of people who otherwise maybe wouldn't eat there, which yeah. is really nice. So, because it's three courses for 25 pounds and... I actually think that's amazing value. Like, I don't think you could eat a Pixar Express for 25 quid, you yeah. know. No, it is for that quality of cooking. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. so it's really nice. And uh, and um, just before we move on to talking about your current home, I just the environment at Spring, uh, we've talked touched on this already, but the dining room, the Bellini cab chairs that you have, the overall experience, I think, is such an aesthetic one as well. Talk to me about that. Why do you think that's all important in this whole mix? Okay, so when I left Petersham, I felt like everyone said, oh my God, you're a Petersham nursery, there'd be this kind of awe. So I thought, oh God, I've had this really beautiful restaurant. So like, I can't be the person who was like, oh, that was Sky. she used to have that really beautiful restaurant, you know, and now she's like in the West, you know. I wanted to do something really different. So I thought like, and actually the aesthetic of Petersham, I love, but I'm not shabby, you know, when people used to term it shabby chic, shabby chic that's yeah. how everyone would describe it. It's like, I don't actually do shabby, like I'm a Virgo, I like quite clean things, you know what I mean? And anyway, so I thought I, I have to do a beautiful restaurant, but it has to be completely different. And then I wanted to, I think you could have easily gone with spring into super clubby West End male vibe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? Yeah, like, a bit of leather act, yeah. Yeah, a bit kind of Balthazar, like male, right. you yeah. know, smoky, yeah. clubby, you know. And I wanted to do something very light and female. Yeah. I wanted it to be like a watercolour. That was what was in my mind like, like wash out. Mm. I wanted it to be feminine, mm. but not cutesy or, you know, because I adore pink, for example, and all those, you know, we've got those pink sofas and stuff, but it's, I don't think it's girly or, it's not. Know. No, it doesn't feel girly. Yeah. It doesn't feel girly. It feels like at the restaurant of someone who cares about aesthetics, which is not always the case, actually. Mm. It's yeah. a whole, it's an experiential thing from the minute you walk through the door. Mm. You know, you know. I always say to everyone at reception, when you walk in the door, our job is when you come in, whoever you may be, is like, we have been waiting for just you all day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, That's you're, really nice, yeah. You've got to make people feel good, you know, and that's a real, like, that's a real gift to be able to do, I think. You mm. know, it's so nice to make people feel a little bit better. Mm, yeah. um, and I think that's what restaurants, for me, are anyway. You know? Yeah. I can vouch for that because it wasn't long ago, and I don't think I've ever done this before, but I had both lunch and dinner at Spring. Mm. I know. So, some friends invited us for dinner, and then we all ended up going there for a work lunch to celebrate something on the same day. I was like, great. And... Um, you know, we had quite a big table for lunch. I was pretty peripheral to the whole thing. Went out, did you know, had a couple of hours out and about, came back for my dinner, which was a much more intimate thing, <laughs> just four of us friends. Anyway, the waiter immediately recognised me and said, welcome back, you know, how come you're back? And then kind of engaged with me about it. And that was really nice because mm. I didn't expect it, you know, and I think in a lot of places it would have been a much more hands-off slightly clinical experience it's a small thing but it kind of matters yeah totally and it's huge for us yeah you know i i still i'm going to be really honest with you like i still sometimes when i look at the booking sheet and i go oh my god people are actually coming to eat with us yeah yeah (laughs) i can't quite believe i mean for years in this house actually i mean this was the first house i ever bought myself you know um every time i put the key in the lock it's like i've got a house 
I couldn't, I'm always quite sort of shocked. So I still get, like, I'm still incredibly touched that people would choose to come and eat with us. Let's talk about your current home. Yes. We're in it. Yes. We're in Shepherd's Bush. You are. In London. Um, how long have you been here for? I think I've been here for about maybe 14 years, 15, oh, maybe wow. 12 years. So what was it like when you bought it? Because um, it's basically it's a Victorian terraced house. Yeah. What was it like? I looked for ages because I actually separated from my youngest um, daughter's father. And we'd been in Shepherd's Bush for ages. And um, I kind of wanted to stay here because I guess the fabric of the kids' lives were really here and lots of their friends, you know. But I looked for ages. And then this house, we saw this house and it was completely untouched, actually. It had an outside loo just on here was just like this little lean-to that was like a really 1970s kitchen. And it had no central heating. It had nothing. It was, when I came, my bedroom upstairs was must have been where he slept and he all his things were here. He, I think he'd lived here for like 40 years and had actually gone to, I think he'd gone to hospital and never come back sort of thing. It's actually dent in his sort of bed. And I remember bringing the kids here and they were like, we're not coming with you. Like, that's just the worst house we've ever, it's just so, like, they literally burst into tears. But they gave me so many things. They said if I moved to Acton, then they wouldn't come with me as well. Like, they would, they're not going to Acton, forget about it. Like, okay. you could go on your own. I mean, despite the fact that they were sort of 10 and something, so they had to come with me. And we ended up buying it. And, you know, in the beginning, it was like, okay, it's only two bedrooms, but I need three bedrooms. But as soon as I started work on it, the whole back fell down. So I sort of had oh. to build the back. But I think I did everything with the least amount of money, you know, had a small budget that I mm. had to stick to. And so it's kind of evolved over the years. It's had kind of a few different incarnations, really. So you've got the kitchen at the front in yeah. the Victorian Bay window, yeah, which is really nice. And what struck me when I came in is you squeezed an island in, but a very narrow island. Yeah. So actually you've made a huge amount out of quite a narrow, small space. Yeah, well, I think in terms of a kitchen, you ideally I think you either want to cook all on one line or you want a triangle. But you don't really want, you know, your f fridge over here and your stove way over, you know, you mm. kind of, there's a kind of ergonomics to how, mm. you know, I think kitchens work. And it does work. I mean, to be honest, I don't cook a lot. Do you not? <laughs> no. I mean, because I'm around food, like, for 12 hours a day, and, like, I very often eat, like, family meal at work, and the kids aren't here anymore. So, like, it's had a lot of cooking over the years, but but I'm actually, I'm not a homebody. Okay. So, like, I never understand people who stay in a house all day. I would go mad. Mm. So I, I leave that house at 8 in the morning, and I'd probably come back at 8 or 9 at night. So what what is... The home represent for you in that case? It's definitely a retreat. Like, yeah. so when I come home, like, I'm really, I love shutting the door and it's just, like, it's quiet. Mm. It's quite private, I feel. Like, I, I'm not that good about having people in my house. Mm. Sorry. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> no, not at all. But, I, um, but I'm not, like, I, I don't entertain a huge yeah, entertain. amount. Yeah, I feel like my whole life is on show and I see so many, not on show, but, you know, in a restaurant, obviously, you see people all day, every day, and I talk, and I'm with, and I, and this for me is like a jewel box that I come back to, and yeah, you know, yeah, I, I think that. like when we were talking really in the beginning of the podcast about like the quiet, and this is like where I can be quiet, mm. you know, and I'll come home here often at night if I haven't eaten at work, I will come home and have dinner, but I can't eat so simply like. At work, everyone always says to me when it's tomato season, I'm obsessed with this tomato, either the burner rose or the Vesuvio tomato, and they're like these big, mellow, sweet, like 
like just not acidic tomatoes. Mm. And everyone says to me, what did you have for dinner last night? I go, a Vesuvio tomato. Because that's what I would literally do. I'll take rye bread, I'll take some home from work and I'll just slice up the tomato and put some olive oil on it and salt and pepper and I love a little splash of red wine vinegar and tomatoes. And then I would, I would eat like that and I'll eat like that through the seasons in different ways, just incredibly simply. And um, yeah, and I suppose I've got like, so technically my youngest daughter still lives here, but she's only over at home like one night every two weeks. How old is she? She's 25 and she's sort of at her boyfriend's house most of the time, but she'll tend to come home maybe like dumping ground, change of clothes. (laughs) Like I don't even go to the top floor of the house because it would give me such anxiety if I saw her. Oh my God, no, I couldn't (laughs) see her bedroom. I don't even know what it looks like up there. Anything could have happened. So she's kind of in and out. And I've just had my my eldest daughter who lives in LA and she's been home for five weeks and she stays here when she gets home. But I do dream of them never being here again. That's why I look at houses all the time because I just want a one bedroom where they can't come to. I think if you told them that, well, we joke about it and they know, like, they they know that I just don't, like... And so why is that? Because I've raised them. You like, think you've had enough, you're I've done. I've been a parent for 32 years, like, yeah. I'm done. Yeah. Like, I love them with all my heart, but yeah. go now. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's right, you outgrow that time. Yeah. Like, I, maybe it's not... I, I sound like the weirdest, coldest, like, not family person, and I, I like, I... I love them. They are my loves. Honestly, I adore them. But I also feel like it's time. It's not, you know, I was out of home by 16, 17. As soon as I finished school, and the kids live differently now, which is lovely, but I'm not sure it's always so healthy. You know, I I, see that. Yeah. I don't even think they want to be here particularly. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. And part of being a parent actually is that sort of final piece, which is sailing them off into the world, isn't it? And I guess you can't mentally park that until that's happened i think our job is definitely to make them independent Mm. functioning that's our role you know Mm. and the other thing about kids i find amazing and i think i probably do it when i go home i become the 16 year old everything my mother says irritates me in the way it did when i was 16 Mm. and my kids come home and like they treat it like i know that holly's house in la is immaculate okay and she comes here and it's like oh I'll just dump all of those things. Like my clothes are in the spare bedroom, like where she was staying, which is next to my room. I've got like a wardrobe and some clothes in there. I couldn't even enter the vicinity for five weeks. It got colder and colder. I couldn't find my jumpers, but I just couldn't go into the bedroom because it was like a fortress. I don't know what she'd done in there, you know, and there's bottles and things by the beds and, like, so that, like, just irritates, and they know it irritates me. I, I can see that, though, but also we all get used to being in our own space and our own habits, and it's it's innately stressful to have someone else's stuff in your space, I think. Are you... Yeah. Are you, would you describe yourself as a kind of neat and tidy person? Yeah. Yeah. So, so what happens if things are out of place? I feel anxious. You feel anxious, yeah. 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 I like um, order, yeah. I mean, that's come as I've gotten, I was very messy, you know, I completely identify with it, you know. And, you know, the other thing they do is like, I feel like I'm really well organized and I have my computer charger, my my bed and my telephone. And it's all bets are off with your things when the kids come home. So you come Mm. home, you can't find your charger. Like, I haven't seen my charger, my my computer charger (laughs) for four weeks. And I know where I leave it. And we haven't touched it. 
I don't know, Mum. Yeah. No, I did not take your charger. <laughs> and it's like, you did take my charger because it's by my bed for the last five years. I'd rather just have an adult relationship with him now. Yeah, yeah, I get that. So tell me about your aesthetic here because it's mm. really beautiful and actually a really nice mix, I think, between modern and traditional, I would say between kind of just the right amount of minimal and maximal together. How do you describe how you live? I thank you. I mean, I love things. Everything I could tell you, everything means something to me. Like those plates on the wall are like they're Japanese, but I bought them from a place called Cheese and Fitzgerald in Sydney that I really love and I always go and visit. Or those chopping boards are from Morocco. You know, I try and like feel like a house can be full of memories and touch points. And so I think that would be my biggest thing that I would. Do you ever have people over for dinner? Uh, yes, I do. And yeah. what would you make them? Okay, so it's quite stressful being a cook and having people so over. So right, yeah. People, because people say to you, I don't, I can't have you for dinner. That's the yeah. classic thing people say to me. Probably like, I can't have you in my house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, are you kidding? Like, I just, give me a fish finger, I'm fine. Like, I would mm. never judge anybody yeah, else's yeah. cooking because yeah. it's what I do for a living. Mm. I mean, you know, and I'm just grateful, mm. you know, I don't care. But I think that people are going to come to have dinner here and they'll go, I went to Sky's house for dinner. Mm, mm. It really wasn't all it bad. It wasn't that great. Yeah. It wasn't that great. Like, and so I feel this pressure that mm. I have to perform mm. and be this, like every meal that I would give you would be the most amazing meal. Mm. And I think that's sometimes why I don't do mm. it as well. But in general, I'm like a big one pot person at home. And I tend to, if I'd have you for dinner, I'd probably do something like, big one pot, lots of bread, a really good salad, some nice cheese, some fruit. But I wouldn't have people for dinner more than six or seven times. And if I would, I'd probably have my, like, best girlfriends or, like... Um, They're not going to judge you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also not wildly social, so, mm. like, outside of my work life. Like, I have a kind of really strong network of people that have been in my life for a long time. Do you have a partner or not? No. no. Is there space for a partner? Hmm. Probably not. Mm. do you like it like that well like I feel like I've analyzed myself through this podcast actually <laughs> I think I probably like um I don't feel lonely and I, there's a part of my I suppose my creative life is my most it's where I get this huge deep sense of fulfillment and I couldn't have that interrupted I don't think you know like I mean who wouldn't want to be in love but like I don't know how easy, you know, that is. So I couldn't have just someone who was irritating in my life. Like, mm. I just don't have space. Like, why would you be in my life? I mean, that sounds awful, doesn't it? But, like, I've got so much love in my life. Like, I don't feel deprived. Who knows? Mm. Like, I, I don't know, you know, really. But I, I feel like there's been so much work I've had to do on a personal level that, yeah. What do you mean by that? I don't know. I, I just feel like I, I, there's a lot I want to do around food and the environment. I want to do an education program. Like I feel like there's a lot I've got to do and I feel like that's my purpose. That's more important to you than the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. I don't know. Like that person hasn't come along. Yeah. I try to be open, like, because I know the kids, they look at me and they would love me to have a boyfriend because then they wouldn't have to worry about me. Yeah. And I remember when my parents got divorced, I was like, I used to pray, please give my mum a boyfriend. So, because I didn't want to 
be responsible for her, you know. And um, so I've, I've been married twice. It's not like I haven't, you know, I just, I don't know. I feel like I'm flying. Yeah, well, that's amazing. Do you think, so you don't want someone to burst that bubble? Maybe not, or expect things from me, mm. if I'm truthful. Have people maybe let you down? Uh, I think I let people down. Okay. In a way, because I'm so, fo- work is, it's everything to me. Mm. So I, yeah, I don't want to stop that. So, yeah, it would take someone incredibly kind of egoless, wouldn't it, to be able to... And someone who's very self-sufficient. Yeah. Because I'm not looking after anyone. (laughs) Is that terrible? I don't... I mean, I I, know. It's not terrible. I mean, honestly, I'm feeling a bit guilty now. I think I feel like I sound like this horrible, weird person. But it's just like, I feel so blessed. I feel like I've been given a huge purpose. You know, in that time when I worked with Layla, you know, and she's come over here and I'm going to make a stock and everything. She opened up a whole world to me that I find incredibly satisfying. And maybe it is my love, you know. There's a lot of work to be done around the kind of environmental things and stuff. And I think it's very urgent. I mean, we have a very, very broken food system. Hmm. And I feel like I should spend the last kind of 15 years of my work life giving back on that, like mentoring. I really want to do a growers education program done. So I feel there's, for me, there's a sense of urgency that I've got a lot to do in quite a short period of time. Mm. So maybe that makes me very single-minded as opposed to being more open-minded. Yeah, got it. So we asked you to think about your potential home of the future or your kind of dream home what what would it look like well I sort of do dream about lateral living like I would love maybe one huge room maybe you know like a multifunctional space then I think I couldn't be without a garden of some description you know sometimes I dream of retiring up the north coast of New South Wales Mm -hmm. because I think I'm scared to be old and poor and cold Old and cold, yeah. Yeah, so I think, oh, God, maybe I could move, like, to a small country town, have a vegetable garden, Mm. walk the beach in the morning, you know, tend to the vegetables. It's interesting how we're going to live moving forward, isn't it? Because I definitely think the weather has changed quite dramatically. These houses, almost impossible to sleep in the top floor in the summer. Okay. They're like hot boxes. Mm. It's interesting because I do think the weather's changed. Yeah. And I don't think it's going back. I do wonder what we're going to do about the heat. Mm. Yes, it's all a massive conundrum. Um, Massive conundrum, yeah. It is. So actually, as a company, I think the Modern House, we're thinking about how we can help in this area as well. Mm. It always interests me that when you buy a home, you get an EPC, Energy Performance Certificate. And it tells you also where it could get to if you improved the energy efficiency Mm. of it but no one actually tells you the things that you can do to affect that change so I think that's quite an interesting uh, task for us to try and help people with that maybe yeah I agree I think there's so much talk but there's very little kind of solution like simple information for anyone in terms of you know how maybe that you could eat more sustainably or live more sustainably for a long time, I think it, it felt a very long way away. Like, I think people couldn't look yep. at t- climate change because it was over there. Yeah. 
And now I don't think anyone could deny it anymore. Well, that's the good thing, isn't it? So I think yeah. we've reached the point of acknowledgement, yeah. mass acknowledgement. Yeah. And then the next stage is, you know, for mass education. It's very, very confusing because I think there's a lot of greenwashing and co-opting. And I think mm. big companies have uh, almost instilled fear into people around sort of food. Like, I mean, I think the thing is, <clears throat> I always think it doesn't matter, like, what you eat. Like, I think the thing is, ask where your food comes from. Like, mm. be curious. I think that's a really good starting point. It's really hard. I'm, you know, there's such a cost of living crisis and uh, good food does cost more. And cheap food is, you know, without sounding like a cliche, costing the earth. Mm. You know, it's incredibly expensive for us to grow food so cheaply, both health-wise and for the environment. You right. Know? I mean, there's lots of things you can do, but like it's, there's not just one solution and you can't really look at single-use plastic without looking at fast food. You can't really look at food without looking at the environment. You know, mm. it's like we're in a pickle. Mm. I, I find it very interesting. I think there's a lot of people, younger people now that I sort of, I see a lot of kids who really want to go off grid. Mm. I see a lot of kids, uh, especially among chefs, who really want to return to growing. I think that's a huge thing to grow their own food, to have a piece of land. And that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. You know, hopefully there's enough people who want to do things a bit differently. Yeah. Hmm. Well, like that, the climate is speaking and it, the rain is sheeting down. <laughs> I know. So I used to grow up with that times 500. Yeah. That sound. How beautiful is it's, that? It's such a lovely sound. It's such a good sound. Sky, thank you. Pleasure. Very much. I've I probably really been so it. revealing. That is my problem. I was like, oh my God. I really appreciate you being so honest and open. I'm sure I won't if I listen to the podcast. <laughs> I'll regret it. But no, I won't. Thank you. No, it was such a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much for listening to my chat with Sky today. If you enjoyed it and you haven't already done so, please do follow the show because you'll be alerted about new episodes as soon as they come out. You can check out some photographs of some of the things we talked about today on our website, which is themodernhouse.com. And as always, if you can find the time to leave us a quick rating or review, that's massively appreciated because it just helps other people to find us. Thanks so much to our team at The Modern House for producing the show. Thanks to our executive producer, Kate Taylor of Feast Collective, and also to Father for making the original music. Thanks to all of you and see you next time.